It is, it is always, and I've said this to John and I say this every time. Um, every time I actually get to be with you guys, it is like, you don't know how excited I get and how happy I am that I get to um, escape. No, I'm kidding. That I get to be, that I get to be with you guys um, every time I do get the opportunity to do that. So uh, tonight, by God's grace, we will be looking through the parable of the tenants, which is bit of a strange one. You kind of read it and you're like, oh yeah. And then you sort of move on to the next bit of the Bible. So we are going through a series or you are going through a series, as I understand it, called Knowing Jesus. Correct? Knowing Jesus. Right. So um, we want to kind of have a read of this parable and then explore who God is through this. Who Who is Jesus? What do we learn about him and his heart through um, this parable? But just before we do that. Let's just bow our heads um, and commit the time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for another Friday night, Lord, where we're all healthy. We're all alive, Lord. We all get another opportunity to sit under your word, Lord, to hear directly from you, Lord, to um, be convicted, Lord, to, to know you more, to follow you more, to obey you more, to surrender to you more and to just enjoy you more, Lord. We just thank you. We pray that you would speak directly to each of our hearts um, tonight and that the time would be wholly yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, open up your phones slash Bibles, please, with me uh, to Matthew 21 uh, from verse 33. Um, This same parable, the parable of the tenants, as it's called in my translation, or the parable of the vineyard, is found in Mark 12 and in Matthew 21. And I'll kind of just switch between Matthew and and Mark for just a little bit of a difference in wording, but you don't have to switch with me. Just uh, stay in Matthew if you like. So, uh, the parable of the tenants. Just before I get into it... um, The question for tonight is, how does this parable reveal more of who Jesus is to us? But when I ask that question and it's kind of in its pure form, how do I know more about Jesus in this? I kind of think a little bit further to John 10, 29, 30, which says this. Jesus speaking, saying, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Which is a beautiful thing. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And here's the kicker. I and my Father are one. So as we're trying to find out more of who Jesus is today, we're actually looking at the Father heart of God, who Jesus represents in human flesh. Jesus came to show us who the Father is and what the Father's heart looks like, expressed In the love of Jesus and expressed in the giving of Jesus to us. Right. John 14, 8 to 9. Philip is speaking to Jesus and he says, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? The beautiful thing is Jesus didn't actually come to represent himself. Jesus came to represent Everything that the Father is. And when He sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak about Himself. The Holy Spirit speaks about and represents everything that Jesus is. And that's the beautiful kind of harmonious working of the Trinity of God. 
right? Everyone is representing everyone else beautifully and perfectly. Um, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. So as we are getting to know who Jesus is through this parable, we're getting to know who God is, not just Christ in human flesh, but everything and the one that he, he came to represent. So Matthew uh, 21 from 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Right? What's going on here? Context is Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he's sharing with them this parable in a series of parables he was saying in that order. And as he's speaking to them, to simplify the story, there is a man who builds an estate in a vineyard on that estate and he wants that vineyard to be tended. So he hires some tenants to actually tend that vineyard. He goes into another country and then when the time of harvest comes, he sends people to gather the fruit of the labor of that vineyard. And every time he sends someone, um, they beat him or mistreat him um, or kill him. And then finally he sends his son and they do the same to him. And then his judgment falls, right? Just very skeleton retelling of the story. But I just want to break it down verse by verse and just share with you the things that stood out to me um, as I was... Um, preparing for this time. Um, and it was really rich because it's one of those parables that I just kind of read and moved on. Um, not this time. So the questions that were in my heart are, what does this parable show us about the heart and intention of God? And what does this parable show us about the heart and intention of man? Because there's a contrast there that we're going to see. So how can we understand God and ourselves better as a result of reading this parable, right? So we'll start at verse 33, right? Um, I'll read it to you again. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence 
around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Just stop there. Who's doing all the work? The master. Whose vineyard is it? The master. This is God's work beginning to end. It's God's vineyard beginning to end. He has laid all the groundwork. It's his property. It's his territory. And he's done all the work to make it a viable place to actually bear fruit. He's laid all the groundwork. The tenants did nothing other than come in. They've come into something pre-established and that was the master's work, not their own. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. God's work is ultimately good and right and perfect. There was no mistake with the vineyard. It wasn't unfruitful in and of itself. It was made properly, right? Colossians 1.16 says this, For in Him, you don't have to look it up, just you can listen. For in Him, all things were created. All things were created. The Master is the Creator. All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Through Him and for Him. This vineyard this, and the parable and everything that follows is based on this principle that God made something. That He made it and that He made it for Himself, ultimately. And these stewards, these men, these tenants are only there to steward what He has made. And ultimately give Him back from what is only His own. They're not making something new. They're not bringing something of their own to the table. They're giving God back only what belongs to Him already. It takes us back to another garden that God Himself planted. The garden of Eden. He created it. He planted it. But He gives men the responsibility and the privilege of tending it and caring for it as He cares for them. As He takes care of them. So that's the first thing that stands out in this parable. And everything that follows is that God created. God creates and God creates for His glory. We are tenants. We own nothing. We are here by His grace and it's His vineyard. Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, He sent His servants to the tenants to get His fruit. Or in Mark, it says, At harvest time, He sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. God provides all the necessary resources for His work to bear fruit. He gives the provision. He built the towers. He put up the fences. He dug the wine press. He's done everything to actually bring about the fruit. And we read in the parable of the sower that He's even the one who plants the seed. He has done everything to provide the grounds for fruit to be born. And He expects it. To be born, right? But here's the beautiful thing. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says this. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Most people stop there and they're like, oh, my salvation's by works. I've got I to gotta do enough to maintain my standing with God. And if that were the case, every single person in this room is going to hell. The rest of the verse says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act for His own purpose and for His own good pleasure. For it is God. It's God from beginning to end. It's God from beginning to end. It's our role to actually get out of His way so that the fruit can be born. Right? Fruit was coming. Naturally, the ground bears fruit, but these tenants are withholding that intentionally. They are standing in His way. They are refusing to give Him the fruit that is owed to Him and that should naturally be produced from what He has given them. And that's important to understand. He has given us a helper in the Holy Spirit to empower us to live and to walk in the life that He's called us to live. To bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Fruit is expected of us as believers. And a lack of fruit indicates that we are not believers. I'm not talking about a season. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about a consistent pattern of this person says they're a Christian. And 10 years ago, they were exactly the same as they are today. There is no fruit. And in here, we get another layer of that. There is a deliberate pushing against and rejection of a desire to bear fruit or to even be associated with the king. This is not the mark of a believer. God is asking only for what is his and what has always been his. And what is owed to him. First Chronicles 29.14 says this. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly in this matter. In this manner. And there's the heart of a believer. For all things come from you. And from your own hand we've given back to you. There's a re- recognition here that everything is from God and back to God. And we are privileged to be able to have any of it and to give it back to him into his own hand. Right? We go to verse 35 to 37 in Matthew. And it says this. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. I'll read it in Mark for you. He sent a servant, but they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. What does this tell us about who God is and what he's like? God doubles down on his investment. Isn't that crazy? If there was a modern day company, right, where, you know, I bought a farm and then I put a bunch of people on it and, you know, I, I sent someone a year later to actually see how the farm was going in 2022. And then, you know, a week later, I'm like, oh, where's the report? And then I go and ask somebody on the factory floor. I'm like, hey, guys, where's Steve? And they're like, oh, Steve's dead. What? Like, this is, this is a preposterous response to a reasonable request. Hey, man, 
I own the farm. It's my farm. And you are working for me on my wages on my farm. And you just killed someone when I asked you whether the farm was producing something. This is insane. Like the, the, the level of depravity in that is crazy. How wicked does a servant have to be to treat and how detached from the idea of a master does he have to be in order to act that way. But we see that God doesn't stop there. He just doubles down. They sent one, they beat him. So he sends another one with, in response to their lack of reasonable reaction. He also, from our eyes, continues to do an unreasonable thing, which is to continue to love them and actually continue to provide them with chances to repent. Again and again and again, he keeps sending people in spite of all reasons. Like, hey, they're, they're dying. They're getting beaten. They're getting stoned. This is not a good thing to be doing. But God doubles down and leans in in his love towards us. Second Peter 3.9 says, He, the Lord, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, talking about his return. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's giving chance after chance after chance after chance at great cost to himself. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, and we'll see that in a second, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The last one, 1 Corinthians 13.4-7, Love suffers long and is kind. You hear this at weddings, but the meaning of it just goes straight over. You want to know what love suffers long and is kind means? It means continued grace in the face of hatred and decided opposition. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How much faith do you have to have to keep sending people to a crowd that is so hard of heart that they want that they kill your servants and you continue in spite of loss, unbelievable loss, to continue to send them. That's the heart of God towards a sinful, fallen world that utterly hates him and rejects him. We see that clearly. The more they reject, the more he sends. And then we get to verse. 37 and then 38. I'll read it in Matthew. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Mark 12 verse 6 says this. He had one left to send. One. A son whom he loved. 
They're not servants anymore. They're not hired hands anymore. He's a son whom he loved. It is his final plea to them. He sent him last of all. There is no one else saying they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. First of all, how detached from reality do you have to be to think that if this man, if this is his son, and I kill his son, then the father will give me the inheritance of that son. That's just a preposterous way to think. You are detached from reality. Your heart and your mind are so warped as to actually think that a possibility. Right? But they're not really thinking of God at all because they're possessed by what the Bible calls the spirit of Satan. Isaiah 12 to 15 speaks about the fall of Satan from heaven. It's an incredibly hardcore passage. It says how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. That happened to Satan. The next conversation Satan has is with a woman named Eve. And he says to her, the first recorded words of Satan in the entire Bible, indeed, hath God said, question mark. Hey, is this really, is this really what God said to you? I just want you to, I want you to doubt him. I want you to not believe him. I want you instead to believe that he is withholding some great good from you. That is owed to you. And that you should go out and take it for yourself. Why believe God? Why follow Him? Why be under His dominion when you can become your own God? When you can possess His power and rule your own life? Be master under no one. Be beholden to no one. Do you trust Him after He withheld something from you? The knowledge of good and evil so that you can be like him? Wow. It's the same lie. It's the same pride. It's the same loftiness of spirit. It's the same atheistic heart that says, I will make myself God. This is my vineyard and its fruit is owed to me. You forget completely who planted it, who put up the fences, who put up who planted the ground that you're standing on, you erase it from your memory. You've become so detached from that reality that you begin to speak like this. Ephesians 2, 1-2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit 
who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's the spirit in these people tending or not this vineyard. There's a beautiful quote that I read a few weeks ago or reread a few weeks ago. And it was very sobering to me. And it says this, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and that we must take matters into our own hands. You know what the great irony of this whole situation is? The son was coming so that they could share in the inheritance with him. You don't believe me? Romans 8, 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you out by adoption to sonship. Not as servants, but as sons. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. They wanted to kill him so they could have the inheritance. The great irony is that he was coming to bring them into the inheritance that they wanted to kill him for. That's true of the Jews then. It's true of us now. We reject God because we think he's withholding something from us. Some sense of freedom, some pleasure, some surrender of will. He's coming to do the opposite. John 10.10, the thief, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and to destroy. But I have come so that they may have life and life in its full measure. But somehow they thought that killing him, rejecting him would be the way to that. Verse 39 uses this phrase. It's important for us to notice. And they took him, that is the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard or outside the camp and killed him. That phrase is in Mark. You know what's crazy? The son knew that everyone the father had sent before him had, had, had suffered a horrible fate. But he was willing to go all the same. He made no protests at all, but went willingly and obediently to a people who he knew loathed, despised, and were at enmity with him. That's what we learn about Jesus. That's what we learn about the love of God, that relentless love that we sing about. This is what it looks like. That in the face of this, and after that track record, Jesus would say, I'll go. I'll go. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate or outside the camp, which is the same phrasing that this parable uses in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he 
endured. Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem at Golgotha on a cross. Symbolic of what you see in Leviticus for the sin offering that was taken outside the camp and killed. Everything in the Old Testament is just a shadow for everything in the New Testament. And this parable is mirroring that language. Jesus is foreshadowing by saying they killed him outside the camp or outside the gate. And that's what it represents. And it says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And there's a verse in 52, Isaiah 52, 7 that says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Talking about every single one of those martyred believers before Christ in the prophets and after him all the way up to today, who knowing the hostility they will face, one after the other, follow Jesus outside the camp and sometimes to slaughter and to death, like in this parable. They obey the master's voice when he says, go, go and tell them the news. Go, go, go. And each of them follow their master's footsteps. And many of them meet the end of death. But the Bible praises them, honors them. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bear good news. The gospel. Right? They follow Jesus outside the camp. And Jesus went outside the camp, like it says in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And before his shearers, he was silent. No protests from Jesus. No disobedience. No wavering in his intention. Steadfast to the cross. Which is why verse 40 to 41 is so hardcore. When, therefore, therefore, after all these attempts, and then after the final ultimatum of Jesus, when, that's the therefore, when all of that is done, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they answered, the Pharisees standing in front of him answered, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Here's the crazy thing. A consistent, deliberate, Knowing, understanding, willful rejection of God. A final rejection of God leads to a final judgment by God. And that's what we see here. Wasn't once, wasn't twice, it wasn't. And it wasn't like they didn't know who he was sending or what he wanted or who the son was. No, there was no ignorance in this picture. They understood exactly who God was, exactly what he was doing and exactly what he was asking and what he was offering. And they made a conscious decision not to put it off or to delay it or whatever, but to wholeheartedly oppose it. 
Do you understand? This is when you when that is the heart that you carry and you decidedly this you you make a conscious decision that you will willfully oppose God for the rest of your days. This is what we read. Hebrews 10:26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Sinning deliberately here as I as I my in my understanding of the Bible is not I knew I shouldn't have watched that movie. I watched it anyway. I sinned deliberately. No, this is that willful hardening of the heart based on the knowledge of the truth. I have seen the truth. I have heard the gospel. I know what Jesus is offering. I will do everything in my power to oppose that. The picture we see of that is Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Pharaoh having Moses come to him as the messenger, just like in the vineyard, and saying, the God of Isaac, Abraham and Jacob, I'm telling you who God is. I'm telling you that he's called us out to worship in the desert. And I'm telling you that if you don't allow us to do that, this will be the consequence. Pharaoh laughs him out of the room. Pharaoh experiences the first consequence and then begins to realize that those words aren't just talk, that he meant what he said and that this God is real, more real than any of the gods of Egypt because he puts all of them to shame. The sun God, there's no more sun. The river God, there's no more water. The blah, 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 the fertility God, you know, all the firstborn are dead, etc., etc., etc. This is the God above all gods. This is the King of Kings and there is no escaping that fact because you're looking him in the eye. You're seeing him act every single day. And at the start, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there were ten plagues. And in the first five, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And in the second five, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is terrifying. When you go on in that deliberate, hard, deliberate opposition, not falling into sin. There's a difference. You fall into sin and you're like, no, I've sinned. I want to repent. The heart that wants to repent is not what's being described here. There is no repentance. There is not a shred of that in the tenants. There's not a shred of that in Pharaoh. So God gives him what he's asking for. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because the only sacrifice there is that can cleanse your sin is Jesus. And you've just rejected him wholesale. There no longer remains one. Not because that's it. It's over for you. But because you are choosing to exclude yourself from the only thing that can save you. Deliberately. But what is waiting for you? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Quite possibly the most serious passage in all of Scripture. It's not describing someone who's struggling with sin. It's describing someone who has set the posture of their heart against God. While knowing full well who he is. Right? Because Romans 1.20 says this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that the people are without an excuse. And everyone in this room fits under that category of people without an excuse. Spurgeon says this, the son was the final messenger. There would be no other. Either they would accept the message of the son or face certain judgment. If you do not hear the well-beloved son of God, you have refused your own last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope be rejected. That's what these men are showing you in their deliberate, consistent, set refusal of God and all that they have seen of His goodness and His love and His grace. So ultimately, just like in the vineyard, you reap what you sow. And that's what happens here when the fiery judgment of God that's described comes. It doesn't come after one warning and it doesn't come after and it doesn't come after I fell in sin. No, this is a person who has decided. I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, this is the opposite of that song. I have decided to not follow Jesus. Over and over and over and over and over again. Until the door is shut. And the judgment comes. Verse 42 to 44 speaks about the chief cornerstone. Right? It says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Notice the vineyard remains, but the tenants are going to be judged and removed from it. God's work, what he has made, what he has willed, what he has purposed will remain. Because that's not the problem. Eden wasn't the problem. Neither is this vineyard. Neither is the church of God as a people. The people are broken as individuals, but the church is of God. Right? And this rock that we hear about, uh, I read in a commentary a really cool kind of summary of it. That rock that Jesus mentioned, which is himself, is the rock of provision that followed the people of Israel in the desert, gave them water. In 1 Corinthians, it's the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the Jews. In 1 Peter, um, oh, sorry, that was in 1 Peter. Um, in Daniel, it's the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdoms of this world that Daniel sees in his vision. And in the Gospels, it's the stone upon which, or it's the rock upon which the church will be built, as Jesus was talking to Peter. And on this rock, 
I will build my church. Which is an incredible thing to say. Acts 17.31 says, For he, God, has set a day, and this is Paul speaking, when he will judge the world with justice. And the irony is the son who then killed and rejected, and who we kill and reject today, will be the judge. That he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There will be at the end of all things no opposition to Jesus. No one who can stand in his way. He will have the final word. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest, that is Jesus, to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The beginning is that God creates and then God creates for his glory. And in the end, we see that God created and God created and was glorified. The beginning and the end. The parable starts that way and ends that way. Our world and our existence start that way and will end that way when the curtain finally falls. Verse 45 to 46, which is the last verse. Well done for hanging in there. Good job, guys. Um, Says this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. If you had any... Let me... A commentary puts it this way in a really cool summary. When they heard and recognized that this parable was about them, they were cut to the heart and convicted by the Holy Spirit. But they reacted to the conviction of the Holy Spirit by further rejecting, not by receiving. Do you see the difference? This is not a person who wants to repent. This is not a person who has fallen into sin and wants to be restored. This is a person who has set their heart against, who calls evil good and who calls good evil. Who can look at Christ, the ultimate of good, and say, I am looking for opportunities to kill you. And when you just gave me that warning, I'm looking to kill you even more. That's the heart that we are addressing here. They plotted to murder Jesus instead of repenting in that moment before him. Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 says this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice spoken to every single one of us in this room, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested And tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is not ignorance. This is not, but I didn't know. This is deliberately 
knowing and seeing who God is and choosing to go the other way. And God says, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. Not they knew them and they departed from them. They have not known them, period. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And therein is the judgment. That's the end of the parable. But the note, a note that's kind of separate that stood out to me, and I wrote it down. I said, Jesus could see in his mind's eye which of the Pharisees he was speaking to and was standing in front of him in that very moment would be present only days later, jeering and mocking at the foot of the cross where he would be hung. The thought never entered his mind to dilute the truth in order to win them over. And his obedience to his father's will and word was perfect. His representation of his father was perfect. Come whatever cost to his own person and to his own life. That's what we learn about Jesus as he comes to represent the offer of grace and love. That God extends out to each one of us and to a world that is at enmity with him, but desperately needs him. We are called to carry that same message, that same difficult message. We are called to follow Jesus outside the camp. It isn't pleasant. It's not going to be easy. The world is going to hate us for it. But that is where we belong, at the side of our master walking in his footsteps. It's easy to say this from a pulpit and I'm speaking to myself, but that's where we ought to be. And diluting the truth never entered into Jesus' mind and our culture on every front is tempting us to just take it easy. Just compromise a little bit here. Jesus loves everyone. Just everyone, everything's fine. Just... Just a little bit here and a little bit there until, as I think A.W. Tozer said it, the gospel of today is so diluted that if it was poison, it would kill no one. And if it, would, if it was medicine, it would heal no one. The gospel today is so diluted that if it were poison, it would kill no one. And if it were medicine, it would heal no one. Preach the truth. Speak the truth and speak it in love and speak it Boldly to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Because that's the real gospel. No other gospel saves. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the chief. As Paul says and as I say along with him. And apart from him we're nothing. It's his vineyard and it's for his glory. And he gives us something to steward that we couldn't earn. But by his grace we get to participate in it. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for your character, Lord. We thank you that in our rebellion, you double down in your love, Lord. You sacrifice more and more until you gave us 
your own son, your most precious possession, whom you loved, Lord. We just thank you for your amazing grace towards us, Lord. We pray that the truths in your word would um, be implanted in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and that we would bear fruit worthy of repentance, Lord. Um, That by your spirit you would will and you would do um, for your own good pleasure, Lord. We need you so desperately, Lord. If there are any among us who don't know you, would you open our eyes, Lord? Would you open our hearts to receive the grace that you have set out for us, Lord, that you have accomplished on our behalf that we could never do, Lord? We thank you and we praise you for your unwavering love, Lord. We submit to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.